So who are you working for? Perhaps you've heard the story of a man who got hired to work on a road crew. He'd been working there a couple of weeks and all seemed to be going well. But one day he went and complained to the foreman. He complained that no one had given him his own shovel. All the other guys had their own shovels. The foreman said, what's your problem? You're getting paid, aren't you? Of course I'm getting paid. That's not the problem. The problem is that all these other guys have something to lean on and I don't. Well, today our study in the book of Colossians brings us to the topic of work. What does a Christian employee look like? What does a Christian boss, supervisor look like? Really, all of chapter 3 has been describing for us the normal Christian life. All of chapter 3 has been answering this one question in differing circumstances. What does a normal Christian look like? We have 2,000 years of Christian history. We have thousands of books, millions of lives that have modeled for us what a Christian looks like. We have Christian schools of higher education. We have curriculums. We have Bibles. Those people in Colossae had none of that. Most of them had barely ever seen a Christian before they came to Christ. The whole history of Christianity is less than 30 years old. As we studied at the start of this sermon series, the founding pastor of these three churches in Colossae wasn't the Apostle Paul. It wasn't any of the apostles. They had never been there. The founding pastor was Epaphras, as Colossians 1.7 says. He probably studied under Paul when Paul was in Ephesus for three years. Then he brought the message of the gospel back to his area, back to the Lycus Valley, back to Colossae and Hierapolis and Laodicea. They had no Christian books. They had no Christian schools. They had no Christian curriculum. They had few Christian examples. They had no New Testament. And for their struggle, we are blessed. We are blessed that the Holy Spirit, through Paul, gave them and us this inspired, inerrant letter. What did they have? This letter and not much else. What did they have? They had just a sliver of God's word. Their challenge was not having enough biblical information and understanding. Our challenge just might be that we have too much. We have so much to become a distraction to actually knowing and doing the word. We get distracted with all the stuff that Christianity has for us. We have it all, the books and radio and TV and curriculums and schools, 2,000 years of accumulated stuff. When in reality... What we need is what they got. The simple, clear teaching on what God thinks the normal Christian life is. When you cut out all the Christian stuff that's around us, and on this day, simply focus on the passage in front of us, God's word, and do what it says. So please turn in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Colossians chapter 3. And follow along as I just quickly recap in a, in, a, in a picture for us what is given to us 
for a Christian, a regular, normal, everyday Christian life is supposed to look like. Verses 1 through 4, the normal Christian is one who seeks the things that are above, that sets his mind uh, not on earthly things, but on heavenly things. What Christ has done for us, his death, his resurrection, his coming again, aren't just doctrines, but they're the very core, the very foundation of the life that we lead in Jesus Christ. Verses 5 through 8, we see that the normal Christian life means that we're supposed to put to death the earthly, the selfish aspects of our lives. We're to put off that old self. What's the old self? That's the way we used to walk before we met Christ. We're to stop doing the type of things that typify a non-believer's life. The normal, customary, everyday Christian life isn't supposed to look at all like the normal, customary, unbeliever's life. That's our past, not our present. In verses 9 through 11, we see that a Christian isn't just known for what they put off, but so much more by what they put on. Verse 10 teaches us that the process of change is replacement. After putting off and before we put on, we need to be renewed in knowledge after the image of our Creator. We need to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. We need to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. The normal Christian life is one of pursuing life-changing truth, knowledge of God and Jesus through the life-changing book that we've been given Because only God and His Word can actually give us the knowledge to be able to put off our old self and to put on the new self. Verses 12 through 15 is a great list of the clothing that a normal Christian life is supposed to be wearing. These outward adorning actions are the overflow of renewed hearts and are the overflow of transformed minds where Jesus Christ is ruling in our life, where Jesus Christ rules our heart, our direction, our focus, our priorities, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, and above all, putting on love. These are not the characteristics of some super-Christian. These are the expected characteristics of the normal, everyday, run-of-the-mill Christian. You and me. These are the basic characteristics, the marks of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Then we see in verses 15 through 17 that these Christ-like characteristics are to be exercised in the church. We are called in one body, where Christ is all and in all, where his word reigns and rules, where his word is richly taught and is dwelling in us and with all wisdom, where his word is applied in teaching and admonishing one another. The normal Christian life is one full of commitment and connection to a local church. From the very inception of the church, God's plan has always been that believers should be connected to other believers. The basic, normal, customary, standard Christian life is one of believers being united together in community with other believers in church. In verses 18 to 21, we see that the normal Christian life is marked by godly family dynamics. 
Our relationship with Jesus changes everything. How to be a godly wife, how to be a godly husband, how to be an obedient child, how to be a godly parent are radically altered in the normal, standard, everyday Christian life. This is the normal Christian life, the the life for all believers everywhere, the life for you and me. The normal Christian life is putting God's priorities first, putting to death our old ways, putting into our hearts the life-changing truth of the Bible, putting on the new self with its Christ-likeness, puts church attendance and involvement as a high standard, puts what pleases the Lord as the directive for being a godly spouse, a godly child, a godly parent. And now in these last verses in chapter 3, we see that the normal Christian life means putting God's glory first in our work. Chapter 3 shows us that the normal Christian life looks like, what it looks like in our personal life, for our character, what it looks like in our interactive spiritual life at church, what it looks like in our relational spiritual life at home, and what it looks like in our public spiritual life and our professions. So what does a Christian look like at work? Please follow along with me there in Colossians chapter 3, starting at verse 22. It says, Slaves, Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Father, we come to you just quickly now in asking you to take this, your word, your truth, illuminated in our lives through your Holy Spirit. Teach us, challenge us, convict us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, before we jump into our passage today, we need to talk about some of the words that are in our passage today. You see, we can easily trip over the words slave and master and read into those words a meaning that Paul and that the Colossians did not have. Did you know that the Greek word that means slave, do you know what it means? Slave. You know, so it would seem that, if you just read that, that the Bible condones slavery, right? It seemed like it's okay for slaves and masters. The Bible's okay with slavery. All those horrific visions we have running through our heads, right? How can the Bible be okay with that? So the question is, when Paul wrote the word slave, what did he mean when he wrote the word slave? Did you know in New Testament times, around one-third of the population of the Roman Empire, some 60 million people were slaves. The working class people of the Roman Empire were slaves. When you see the word slave, all we can picture in our mind is the sinful, terrible, horrific, race-based slavery of the past few centuries in America. But slavery in the New Testament time was nothing 
like that. One commentator said slavery in the Bible times was very different from slavery that was practiced in the past few centuries in many parts of the world. The slavery in the Bible is not based on race. People were not enslaved because of their nationality or the color of their skin. In Bible times, slavery was based on economics. It was a matter of social status. People sold themselves as slaves when they couldn't pay their debts or provide for their families. In New Testament times, sometimes doctors, lawyers, even politicians were slaves of someone else. Listen to this quote from Tim Keller. Slavery in the Greco-Roman culture of the New Testament is more like indentured servanthood. It's not what we think of as slavery. When you see the word slave in the Bible, you immediately think of 17th and 18th and 19th century New World slavery, race-based African slavery. When you do that, when you read it through those blinders, you aren't understanding what the Bible is teaching. Historian Murray Harris wrote a book about what slavery was like in the first century Greco-Roman world. He says that in Greco-Roman times, slaves were not distinguishable from anyone else by race, speech, or clothing. They looked and lived like everyone else and were never segregated from the rest of society in any way. Slaves were often more educated uh, than their owners in many cases and in many times held high managerial positions. From a financial standpoint, slaves made the same wages as free laborers and therefore were not themselves unusually poor and often accrued enough personal capital to buy themselves out of slavery. As a matter of fact, 1 Corinthians 7.21 encourage a person, if they are able, to buy themselves out of slavery. Because you could buy yourself out of slavery, very few persons were slaves for life in the first century. Most expected to be free after about 10 years or by their late 30s at the latest. In contrast, what we know of as slavery, New World slavery, 17th, 18th, 19th century slavery, was race-based. And its default mode was slavery for life. Also, the African slave trade was started and resourced through kidnapping which the Bible unconditionally condemns in 1 Timothy 1, 9-11 and Deuteronomy 24-7. Therefore, while the early Christians like Paul discouraged first century slavery, saying to slaves, get free if you can, they didn't go on a campaign to end it. But 18th and 19th century Christians, when faced with New World style slavery, did work for the complete abolition, because it could not be squared in any way with biblical teaching. So the point is, when you hear somebody say, the Bible condones slavery, you say, no, it didn't. Not the way that you and I define slavery. It's not talking about that. As a matter of fact, the very impetus to end slavery in England and America came when they rightly understood and applied the Bible. The Bible was the instrument most used to end slavery. Another commentator wrote, In Paul's day, a kind of terrible idleness had fallen on the citizens of Rome. Rome was the mistress of the world, and therefore it was beneath the dignity of Roman citizens to work. Practically all work was done by slaves, even doctors and teachers, even the closest friends of the emperors. 
The, the secretaries who dealt with the letters and appeals and finances were slaves. So when you rightly understood what slavery was in its first century, you can see why when we go to apply this teaching of the text in our lives, it actually fits very comfortably in our employee-employer relationship. It was so important that we, we don't read our definitions into the biblical text, but instead that we draw out from the biblical text the true historical, grammatical understandings of the scriptures. One more thing that points out the very different understanding of slavery in the New Testament is that often believing slaves and believing masters went to the same church. Galatians 3.28 says that in the church there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male or female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. In the very context of our passage today, in Colossians 3.11, is another one of these verses that talks about the church. And it says, here in the church, there's not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Slave and free didn't go to separate, segregated churches. They went to the same church. And when they walked through those doors, they were equal. Equal in status, equal in opportunity, equal in responsibility. I'm sure that many of the first leaders of these churches were actually slaves in their economic condition. It would not have been uncommon for a believing master to learn and to be led spiritually by his believing slave in the church. Slaves were elders and pastors and deacons in the church. The point is that in New Testament times, slavery was purely an economic distinction, not a racial distinction. Some of our Bible translations try to help us understand the difference. And so they'll come to this word and they'll translate the word in passages like this as bond servant. The application of our passage today directly applies to the employee and employer relationship. These verses God has given to us, his expectation of what the normal Christian looks like at work. So everyone who is an employee, here is God's word for you today. First, verse 22, Christians are to obey they're bosses. A Christian employee is someone who is marked, who is known as an employee who does what their boss wants them to do. Not just sometimes, the scripture says. Not just most of the time. But the verse says, in everything. Every Christian should have, as one of the distinguishing qualities, a willing submission to their boss's direction. Christian, would your boss describe you as a willing employee who strives hard to excel in his or her responsibilities? The Bible says obey, not just when your boss is reasonable, not just when it makes sense to you, but just simply to obey. Hard work, doing what your supervisor says, when and how they want it to be done, is the Christian's way of work. 
Of course that doesn't mean some kind of blind obedience. I mean, if your boss is requiring you to do something illegal or sinful, the principle of Acts 5.29 applies, right? We must obey God rather than men. And any good boss is open to constructive feedback and how to get the job done better. Sometimes the insight of the employee respectfully shared can be very helpful in improving the quality and quantity of the outcome of the job. The point is, if you call yourself a Christian, then you endeavor to be the best employee possible. Then verse 22 describes how we are supposed to obey. We're supposed to obey with sincerity of heart, not as an eye-pleaser, or as a people pleaser. Now each one of us has worked with people who are eye pleasers. Right? They work hard and with great enthusiasm when someone is watching, when the boss is around. You know, their goal is not actually to work hard. Their goal is to just to look like they work hard. They want the boss to think they're a good hard worker, but in reality they aren't. Their heart is insincere. Their focus is duplicitous manipulation. They're one person when the boss is around. They're a totally different person when the boss is gone. We've all seen co-workers like this. They're fake people pleasers. That is not how a person who calls themselves a Christian should act at work. We're supposed to work with a sincere heart. We're the same person at work when the boss is there watching. And when the boss isn't there watching, we're the same genuine person when they're there or not. This insincerity, this isn't just with the actions, but it's also with their words. Fake, eye-pleasing, people-pleasing employees know just how to talk a good game with their boss. They don't just deceive with their actions, they deceive with their conversation. These type of fake workers talk positively about the boss when he's there. But the minute that boss is gone, their conversation turns negative and nasty. They're so respectful when their boss is around and so disrespectful when the boss is gone. The break room becomes a slam room full of criticism and bad attitudes. See, as Christians, we're not supposed to be, you know, the same person in our actions but yet then a different person in our conversations. No, God expects us to have the same work ethic when the boss is present or absent. And God expects us to have the same language, the same respectful conversation when the boss is present or absent. These duplicitous employees' focus is is just to do what's necessary, to do the, the, the bare minimum, to just attract enough favor from the boss and to escape punishment. All they want to do is the minimum to get by. But they want to look like they're the greatest employee. How can I get the most while doing the least? Not so a follower of Christ, a Christian employee. We endeavor to get paid for what we work for. Not to get paid for as little as what we work for. Not to get paid for barely meeting minimum standards. Sometimes, and I've been there, where you work can be steeped in this type of poor work environment. It's difficult. 
Not only is it hard to work there, but the pressure to conform to their bad attitude and to their terrible work ethic can be really strong. And if you endeavor to be a real Christian, if you endeavor to live the normal, standard Christian life, being a genuine person, a sincere employee with your actions and your attitude, you are going to stand out as different. And you might even face negative backlash against your positive, respectful attitude. So why serve your boss? Was this into your heart? I mean, if it's going to cause a negative backlash, if it's going to make me stand out as different, why do that? Because our motivation for why we are working is not about us. It's about Christ. Verse 22 ends saying, The reason we obey our bosses with sincerity of heart is because out of reverence for the Lord. And then verse 23 nails us to the wall. What is supposed to be our motivation in our job? Look at verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Why be a sincere, honest? What you see me do is the same thing I do when you don't see me, employee. Because you're not working for your boss. You're not working for you. You're not working For your family, you are working heartily as for the Lord. Why? Because you're a Christian. You're a follower of Christ. You've identified yourself as a person who has put their faith and allegiance in Jesus Christ. As Colossians 3 has been teaching us, everything we do stems from that reality. Acting like a Christian isn't something we do. Being a Christian is something that we are. You can't turn your Christianity on and off. Well, I'll turn my Christianity on and act like a good Christian at church when I have to. But I'll turn it off at home or I'll turn it off at the break room. No, everything we do stems from the reality of who we are. We are followers of Jesus Christ. Why seek God's priorities first in your life? Because we are followers of Jesus Christ. Why put to death the old self? Because we are followers of Jesus Christ. Why seek wisdom in the Bible? Because we are followers of Jesus Christ. Why put on Christ's likeness? We're followers of Jesus Christ. Why follow the godly principles for the Christian home? Because we're followers of Jesus Christ. Why labor heartily and respectfully at work as for the Lord? Because we're followers of Jesus Christ. See, whenever you see a Christian who's not doing their best at work, you have found a Christian who has forgotten who they're working for. You found a Christian who's forgotten who they are working for. The fundamental question Verse 23 answers is, who are you working for? For the Christian, the answer is so clear. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Does it mean everything at work is going to work out great? Does that mean you're going to get raise upon raise and everybody's going to, you know, flower recognition and praise upon you? Absolutely not. Not at all. Verses 24 and 25 tell us that. They tell us that the outcome of working for the Lord might not get you one extra buck. You might even be dealt with wrongly and unjustly. 
Verse 24 says that the Lord sees what is going on. He receives your obedience to your boss as actually serving him. Think about this. Think about this truth. Jesus receives your work to your boss as actual service to him. And what you can't count on from your boss, you can count on from Jesus Christ. Your boss might not reward you. But verse 24 says, Jesus will, for from the Lord you will receive the inheritance of your reward. You might be treated wrongly, as verse 25 says. This, This world might give deference to the boss over the employee, but God shows no partiality to the boss over the employee. He holds both the employee and the boss accountable for their actions. If you're working just for yourself, if you're working just for money, if you're working just for recognition and power and prestige, the shallowness of that motivation will one day expose your heart to the fertility of your labor. But if you're working heartily, as for the Lord... That superior motivation will sustain you and will fulfill you even through the hardest times, even in the difficult work environment. So before you go to work tomorrow, before you go to work, pray. God, today I'm going to work heartily as for you. Jesus, please receive my work as a service to you. It is my joy today, Jesus, to serve you with my work. If you pray that prayer, your work will be totally transformed. Because no matter what you do, you'll be working for the king. In action and in attitude. Custodian, banker, homemaker, insurance broker, nurse, teacher, student, plumber, every other job. You can go to work tomorrow and work for the king. See, the story is told of a foreman and he came upon a building site. Asked one of the builders what he was doing and the builder replies, I'm breaking rocks. Another worker is asked the same question. He says, I'm earning living for my family. Same question posed to the third worker doing the same thing. With a glint in his eye, he responds, I'm building a cathedral. See, when you go to work tomorrow, are you pushing papers? Are you turning wrenches? Or are you in the service of the king? What a difference in attitude and action, no matter how difficult the work environment is, can be transformed when your service is to the king. The last verse is directed at bosses. It's hard to state how radical this simple verse is. There were no workers' rights. There was no worker protection. There was no OSHA. There were no laws protecting workers' rights and fairness. The reality that God holds masters accountable for the way they treated their servants was powerful, radical, earth-shattering truth. No matter how great or how important they were in the realms of business, they needed to remember that they too have a master who is watching them. And as verse 25 says, God shows no partiality. How a boss leads is their work heartily as for the Lord. How a boss supervises their employees is their service to Christ. 
how a supervisor treats their employees is their sincerity of heart to the Lord. The reality is that for both the employee and the boss, there is a final payday. There's a final payday. Will we hear Jesus say on that day, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So often, you know, we get our directions confused. We get so focused on the horizontal that we lose sight of the reality of the vertical. But it's the vertical, it's rightly relating to God that changes our relationships with each other. Jesus challenged us in Matthew chapter 5. We accept his challenge this day. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Who are you working for? Let's pray. Father, it never ceases to amaze me that words written so long ago can have such power and presence through your Holy Spirit to challenge us, to change us, to convict us, to give us insight on how to live the normal Christian life. We thank you so much for your word. And we pray now that we wouldn't just be hearers as employees and supervisors. We wouldn't have just heard your word today, but it will have gone into our ears and penetrated our hearts, changed our thinking, and we will put on new ways of being an employee and supervisor. We'll put off the old ways. We'll be transformed for Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.